0: Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies, 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio.
1: Facing complete, please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ.
2: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University Talking Technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. It's
1: Groundhog Day! And I'm Jim Russ. I guess it's modified, yes, it is. But it's modified Groundhog Day, right?
2: Yeah, it's a little bit nicer out today, so the people can get out a bit. But I'm still in the bunker. Yep. I haven't, uh, I haven't left the bunker yet, but I may be leaving the bunker soon. But it's still a great, a great, um, a, a great uh, week in technology, as always. Now, one thing: people who had a Mac, they always said, "I wish we would be respected." Mac can finally be respected malware is really infecting Macs. Ah. There are enough Macs out there that it was right. That was worth writing malware for them. And right now, malware in infa- infects one out of 10 Macs. So Macintosh has arrived. It used to be that, uh, nobody even bothered to write it for the Mac.
1: Why are there fewer? I guess the PCs are more prevalent They have more of a more, market share.
2: Yeah. More, more, uh, yeah, more better market share. Also, uh, um, hard drive people have been doing sneaky things they call something called smr shingled magnetic recording hmm. it's a it's a way to crowd more information on the hard drive but it slows it down and they weren't telling people which ones had smr i'll talk about how you can identify whether it's an smr drive and you don't want to get it if you want if you're a gamer and uh, whatsapp is being hacked again that's always a big um, a big uh, project and the uh, CISA security agency has, uh, has set out an alert for all these remote users, uh, telling them how to operate more effectively. Uh, this week, we're going to feature the man that started Dell Computer, Michael Dell. It's now Dell Technologies, and uh, it's an interesting story. He started it out of a dorm room while he was going to college, and, by, and he never did graduate. <laughs> and, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Alice in Alice's Palace. Dear Dr. Schertz and Jim, thank you for the news you can use that was dispensed last Saturday show regarding the 70% alcohol for safe and effective disinfection of cellular devices. I was actually able to find some of the 70% wipes at my local CVS store. My question is, are eco-friendly, non-alcoholic-based cleansers like sodium, cocoa sulfate, or citric acid effective as antivirals? I enjoyed the show most of the time, Alice in Baltimore. Well, uh, Alice, uh, I have to tell you, uh, those, uh, those two things, sodium, cocoa sulfate, that's a surfactant. And a surfactant is what they actually put into uh, detergents. It changes the surface tension, and, and you need that to release the grease. And, P- and they were feeling that if you would add an acid to it using citric acid, it would be more effective. And it turns out that uh, there's quite a bit of research on that, and the combination of sodium, cocoa, sulfate, and citric acid does kill about 99.99% of the pathogens. So it's, it's not a bad uh, antibacterial wipe however it is a surfactant and I think it would damage it would still damage mm. the oleophobic layer on that on your um, on the uh, on the touch screen of your device that oleophobic layer that's a thin layer on top of the touchscreen that repels oil oleophobic it means it repels oil so your fingerprints don't stick to it and this surfactant does the opposite thing that this oleophobic layer would like to do so I just don't think it's good to put the two together so no now uh yes so now the best let me just i the the best thing if you don't want to put anything on your cell phone is get one of these little uv sanitizers uh there's there's you know and you can you just put your phone in there for 10 minutes and it um and it works perfectly there's one called phone soap and you can order it uh i talked about it on tech talk about four weeks ago was sold out everybody was buying it but you just pop it in for 10 minutes and it's and it's purified. Yeah. What was your question, Jim? The
1: question was that it, so the seventy percent alcohol. I guess the the benefit there is that it kills the 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 bacteria, but it's not enough to 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 do anything that would harm the oleophobic layer. Then.
2: That's right. That's right. They did some research on it. If you go above seventy percent, it was it be it will damage the oleophobic layer. Hmm. Uh, if you go um, below seventy percent. It's not a good. Uh, it's not a, It doesn't kill an, all the pathogens. So you need the seventy percent to kill the pathogens. You, but you can't go above seventy percent, or you'll damage the oleophobic layer. Gotcha. And that that advice was just was just released by Apple, actually not too long ago. They um they they che- they put that on that notice on their website maybe six weeks six eight weeks ago, and so they've they've been doing research on it. And Apple, well of course, was the first company. That, uh, that started putting oleophobic layers on their cell phones. I think, I think they did that with the 5S or quite a while ago. Okay, we got an email from Jim in Michigan. Dear Doc and Jim, is it safe to run a laptop without a battery installed? Now, I've, I've heard conflicting answers about this, and I'd really love to have your opinion. The battery in my Lenovo ThinkPad T400 has gone bad, and I really don't want to replace it, But I plan to use use it as my desktop PC until it completely stops working. Jim in Michigan. Well, Jim, uh, the good news is your laptop will run fine without a battery installed, without a single problem. It will. But, uh, you know, but, of course, if you decide to go that route, uh, you know, nothing will be damaged. However... Uh, it is a certain disadvantage not having a battery in your in your laptop. Not from a safety point of view, for instance, if you lose power, boom, you don't have any uh, any backup. If you've got a battery in it, and you lose power, your laptop just keeps working, and that that critical document uh, that critical document won't be lost that you were working on. Or you may want to move the laptop to another location in the house, and it's really easy to do if you've got a battery there. Now the good news is. Actually, replacement batteries are really cheap. I went on Amazon. You can get a replacement battery for your T400 for around $60 on Amazon. That There, there were some listed even for less than that, but they looked a little sketchy. Mm-hmm. So around 60 bucks, you can get a replacement battery. If it were me, I'd just, I'd just get the replacement battery and then still use it as a desktop. But best of luck with your laptop, Jim. We got an email from Rich in Madison, Wisconsin. Dear Tech Talk... We've only Android phones, but the rest of the family has iPhones. Is there any way to share files between iPhones and Android phones? I'd like something like AirDrop, uh, but that only works on the iPhone. Enjoy the podcast, Rich in Madison, Wisconsin. Well, getting files, Rich, from an Android device to a Mac or an iOS device is not always easy or convenient. Uh, Because they're just, you know, they were really made to be incompatible. And uh, AirDrop, which I love on my iPhone, it allows you to transfer pictures or files using basically um, Bluetooth to all of the AirDrop devices near you. The good news is there is an option that will work on both the Android and the iPhone. It's called SnapDrop. SnapDrop. Now, SnapDrop uses a web browser... And uh, and Wi-Fi. It, so the transfer is done via Wi-Fi, not via Bluetooth. And so it uses a browser and Wi-Fi. It first connects to the signaling server, to the SnapDrop signaling server, using WebSocket. That's a protocol for uh, connecting with HTTP WebSocket. If the signaling server determines that the two devices work together, it will complete the data transfer using real web real-time communication, WebRTC, over an encrypted data stream called the Datagram Transport Layer Security. And it sends it from one browser to the other. Now, the server just needs to establish that the two, two devices can work together, and boom, it will do the transfer. Now, the WebSocket protocol is currently... and The WebSocket protocol is... Um, All browsers support the WebSocket protocol, but only some support the uh, WebRTC protocol, and you have to support both of them. So Google Chrome browser works on both of them. Mozilla Firefox works on both of them. Opera Mobile works on both of them, and Apple Safari works on both of them. So what you want to do is you connect. What you want to do, you you take the two devices, the Android device, the iPhone device, you hook them up to the same Wi-Fi network, And then you open a compatible browser, one of the four that I listed, and you go to this website, snapdrop.net, snapdrop.net. And when the website opens, you'll see a small radar image that says, allow me to be discovered by everyone in the network. And so then everyone clicks that on their device, and you can discover everybody on your Wi-Fi network that that has the snapdrop.net website open and you'll see the icon will say transfer files it's just like airdrop you just click on it and you can you can share files with anybody that you discover now the only thing different and you know it's very you know you go to snapdrop.net it's really intuitive on how to use it and uh, the only difference between that and airdrop is that airdrop say I could I could send uh, you know 50 pictures and it would just go but with with snapdrop every file you transfer, the person receiving it has to accept it and give it permission. So it does it file by file by file by file. So if you were going to send somebody 50 pictures, they would have to accept it 50 times. That's the only disadvantage. But at least Androids and iPhones can talk with each other. We got an email from Joy in Ashburn. Dear Tech Talk, my friend just bought a Chromebook after the salesman at the computer store told her they're safer to use than Windows computers. He said it's impossible for a Chromebook to catch a virus. I'd like to know if you agree with him because I'm needing to get a, to get a new laptop myself, Joy and Ashburn. Well, Joy, he is incorrect when he told your friend that it's impossible for a Chromebook to catch a virus. They, I mean, while they don't run Windows, Chromebooks still operate by executing programming instructions. That means they're susceptible to catching a virus if one can manage to make it through the powerful security that Google has built into the Chrome operating system. Then that can, and it does happen on rare occasions. However, the likelihood that a Chromebook becoming affected with the virus or some other form of malware, malware is much less than with the Windows machine. Now here's why. Chromebooks are not as, uh, there are a lot more, there are many, many more Windows machines than there are Chromebooks. Therefore, since hackers want to get the most bang for their buck, they tend to want to write uh, Windows uh, Windows malware programs rather than Chromebook programs. Now, if Chromebook ever dominates the market more than Windows, that may, in fact, shift. Now, the Chrome operating system is very basic, much less complex than Windows. That means there are a lot fewer potential avenues of attack for a user to exploit, for a, for a hacker to exploit. So it, it t- does tend to be a little bit safer for that reason and the uh, another good advantage of the uh, chrome operating system is that it's it's got a built-in system that will prevent the entire machine from ever being compromised for instance if 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 you're operating your your browser in one tab and that tab becomes infected you simply close the tab and then everything is everything else is fine so each executable is operating in its own sandbox as they say now on the other hand windows machines have have some of their great advantages of their own for example, there are thousands of powerful programs that will run on Windows and they'll never run on a Chromebook. And The same thing can be said about the Apple Mac family of computers as well, you know, the Macintosh. So if you need a laptop primarily for Internet use and you want it to be as secure as possible, a Chromebook would be an excellent choice. However, if you need a powerful machine that can run and do almost anything, you're probably better, better off sticking with a real computer uh, either a Windows laptop or a MacBook. So, best of luck with your uh, selection there. Uh, we got an email from uh, Alex in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, what is an RTF file and how do I open it? Someone at work gave me an RTF and I'm at a loss. I don't even know what it is. Oh, I, I use doc files. Well, a file with the RTF file extension, that, uh, that which stands for Rich Text Format. Now, while a normal text file only stores plain text, an RTF file can include extra information about font styles, formatting, images, and more. They're great for cross-platform document sharing because they're supported by a lot of app- apps. Uh, RTF actually was created by Microsoft Word back in the 80s. It was intended as a universal format that could be used on all word processors, making it easier for people to share Word documents with people who don't have Word. You know, back then they had had, uh, WordPerfect, they had a lot of different uh, word processing programs. Microsoft discontinued the development of RTF in 2008, but it's still widely supported by almost every uh, application on every operating system. So if you've got any word processing, uh, any word processor installed—Microsoft Word, LibreOffice, OpenOffice, Abby Word, or so on—you can open an RTF file with it. And if you've got Word, you can all—you can save to an RTF format. So if you want to share a file with somebody, you don't—you're not sure what kind of um, word processor they have, you can share an RTF. Well, listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can.
1: It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2 in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If you uh, need to know more about the uh, programs at Stratford University, go to stratford.edu.
2: Now, Michael Dell is founder and CEO of Dell Technologies. He was born February 23rd, 1965 in Houston, Texas. He's the son of an orthodontist. Dell attended Herod Elementary School in Houston, Texas. Now, he always wanted to start a business. And so at age eight, he sent away for his high school equivalency test for his high school diploma because he wanted to get rid of high school so he could start his business right away. He was ready to go on as quickly as possible. Now he got a job at age 12 as a dishwasher, but he was very quickly promoted to maitre d' because he was so, uh, so good with the customer
1: at age 12
2: at age 12. Yeah. Now that same year he formed a marketing company at age 12 (laughs) and he offered and he offered a national stamp auction through mail, and he earned about two thousand dollars on that venture. So he was uh, he was an entrepreneur from the very beginning. Now, but he finally got interested in uh, in uh, in computers when he got his Apple II computer. He'd been going down to Radio Shack and playing with their computers for a while, and then he finally decided to buy an Apple II probably with the $2,000 that he earned uh, with his marketing company. And he um, and he, he got his new Apple II computer, and you know what the first thing he did? He completely took it apart, and then he rebuilt it. <laughs> now, I don't know if he ever did anything with it, but he certainly, as soon as he got it, out came the screwdrivers, and boom, it was apart. part. Well, so that's when he really got interested in putting together computers.
1: At least it was purchased with his own money, and his parents couldn't have been upset if he couldn't put it back together, Right.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. He attended Memorial High School in Houston, but, you know, he's just not an academic guy. He did not excel very well. His parents were always worried about him in school, you know, what's going to happen to him, you know. At age 16, he developed a scheme to sell newspaper subscriptions for the Houston Post. But what he did, instead of going out and cold calling... He figured a way to download a database, analyze the data in the database, create a targeting marketing, a targeted marketing campaign, targeting those who are most likely to want to get the newspaper. It was extremely successful. In one summer, he earned eighteen thousand dollars selling new- newspaper subscriptions because he was he was their number one salesman. He took his $18,000 and you know what he did? He bought a BMW <laughs> at age 16. I guess he just, I guess he just got his, his driver's license. So he said, well, dad, I need a car.
1: That that makes me feel like he's a bit more normal if he did that.
2: Yeah. As so opposed he, to
1: taking part of computer when he's 12.
2: That's right. He, he, then he went, he did finally graduate from high school. I think his p- parents are a little worried about him and he, and you know, and of course they wanted him to become a doctor, of course. It's either a doctor or an engineer. Right. And uh, and so he enrolled in uh, University of Texas as a pre-med student. And uh, he was in room 2713 of the Dobie Center Residential Building. And so what he started doing, he started running a business out of his dorm room. and uh, And he put together upgrade kits for computers. And so he went out. And he got, he took a thousand dollars and he bought a bunch of parts and he started upgrading computers out of his dorm room and selling the upgraded computers right out of his dorm room. Then he applied for a vendor's license so he could bid on contracts with the state of Texas. And because his overhead was so low, because he was operating a whole business out of the dorm room he started winning contracts from the from the state of Texas to provide computers this was all right out of his dorm room now he wasn't really going to class that much cuz he was sitting in the dorm room putting together computers all the time and his parents began to worry about his grades there's Nick Michael Michael, how are you, how, how are you, you're, you're not going to become a doctor if you you know, like this. You, you need to keep your grades up, you know, because all, all their neighbor kids were, you know, getting A's and then here he was getting D's. Right. So he promised that he would, that what he would do, he told his parents, he said, look, if my business doesn't pan out, I promise that I'll quit this business stuff and I'll just hit the books and I'll real, do really well. They said, okay, Michael, when this business fails, we want you to get back to studying to become a doctor. Well, during the first month of his business out of his dorm room, Dell made $180,000 in sales out of his dorm room. By the end of the year, the company was making between $50,000 and $80,000 a month. Mm. So needless to say, he never did get back to the books he just kept on trucking now he talked to his grandparents and he said look i got to drop out of school this this school not not for me he he couldn't talk to his he he couldn't go to his parents because they were dead set on him becoming a doctor he went to the grandparents and so they said okay michael so they loaned him some money so he could drop out of school and start a company officially so at age 19 He dropped out of college. He didn't even make it through his freshman year. Uh, And uh, in January of 1984, Dell registered a company called PCs Limited. Now, he operated out of a condominium, uh, so he rented the condominium, and he sold between $50,000 and $80,000 a month of upgraded PCs, kits, and add-on components. In May of 1984, Dell incorporated the company as Dell Computer Corporation, and relocated to a business center in north austin now i was i was watching some videos of, of dell and he said yeah back in those days he just said there were three employees and a bunch of tables and screwdrivers and components sitting everywhere because all it takes is a screwdriver to put together these pcs so they they were there assembling these pcs you know you know just with the, he and a, and a few guys uh, but he but dell had a very unique strategy with selling computers he believed that he should sell directly to the consumer and sidestep the usual retail markups. That was his idea. He said, I'm I'm not going to, I'm going to scale up. I'm going to sell to the consumer, but I'm not going to have my computers offered at uh, any computer stores. I just want to sell directly to the, to the, uh, to the person that wants a computer. And so each PC that he made was made to order. So, you would, you know, people would would you know would send in an order, be made to order, and he would assemble it to, to to exactly the spec that the consumer wanted, and then he would uh, put it together and he would mail it to them. And he only kept about twelve days worth of inventory on hand at any one time. And he would he would price components when they were low, and uh, and then he would uh, you know optimize his supply chain. Actually, Dell. In the end, he pioneered supply chain practices for computer manufacturers. He was really quite an innovative guy. Now, in 1996, this is when the big breakthrough occurred. Dell began offering computers online. Remember, the browser was invented in 1994. So this was two years after um, after the World Wide Web came out there. And I remember going online. I ordered a computer. I, I liked ordering computers from from Dell online because mm-hmm. you could just drop down menu, pick pick what processor you want, pick how much RAM you want, they'd kind, kind of, of custom build it put. for you, right? And they custom build it for you. He by night by the late 1990s. I mean, they started selling online in '96, and by the late 1990s, he was selling eighteen million dollars a day online. Mm. Wow. Think about that. $18 million a day. By 2001, by 2001, Dell had reached a world market share of 12.8%. All computers sold in the world, 12.8% of the computers were Dell computers. He actually passed Compact to be the world's largest PC maker. You know, compaq you know, bit yeah. the dust. Yes, uh-huh. So he he actually um uh, was was growing uh, at very very rapid pace. He um he he went public uh shortly thereafter, but by 2013 he was tired of all of the uh the, the drag of being a publicly traded uh company and he decided he wanted to take the company back private. Cuz by 2013 the the PC market was beginning to um dry up. I mean the you know uh, people were moving to uh, you know to the web to to, to iPhones. PC sales begin to plateau. And he just didn't want to have all the hassle of being publicly traded. He wanted to reinvent Dell and he didn't want to have some uh, stockholders looking over his back. So he cooked up a plan to bring it pri- bring it back private. So he worked with Silver Lake Partners, Microsoft and a consort a consortium of lenders to buy back all the stock for $25 billion. And, uh, and he said, well, this was difficult because, you know, it was, it's rough to raise 25 billion, but he did it. And after he bought back the company, the, uh, the, the company was worth uh, he the, 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 he had a 75% stake in the company. So he bought it back for 25 billion and he owned tw- 75% of it. So, so at this point he was, you know, he was already a, a, worth $20 billion. And he started reinventing it, and he, he said, we have to become more than simply uh, a computer company that sells to the consumer, because that market had plateaued. And so he transitioned into becoming a uh, data center provider uh, and, and, and providing a whole ecosystem for data centers and data center solutions. Now, in 2016, Dell acquired the enterprise software and storage company, EMC Corporation, for 67 billion dollars. Wow. That's you know, he crazy. just bought it back for 25 billion, and then they bought that for 67 billion. And that actually increased the footprint of, um, of, of, of Dell computer. And he, and then he changed the name to, um, you know, to Dell, uh, Dell technologies from Dell computer. And, um, and they then began going after the service market, the server market, and sort of the the high end business market. And he continued to grow, but you know he was cash strapped after buying that uh, after buying EMC for sixty seven billion. So he decided to go, go public again because by that time he had reinvented the company as an enterprise, as 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 a hardware and software company to support the enterprise and not just selling to consumers. So he decided to go public again, and so in December. 2018, he went public again. Now, he now has about 10%, he owns about 10% of the company. Forbes estimate that Dell's net worth at, as of May 2019 is around $41 billion. Oh, and yeah. by the way, he did receive an honorary doctorate from a university in Ireland. Mm-hmm. He. hmm. That was a reward because he had set up a production facility in Ireland, and they wanted to pay him back, so he could then go to his parents and say, "Okay, mom and dad, now I have an honorary doctorate. I may not be, I may not be a doctor, but I have an honorary doctorate." (laughs) So there you go. Everything you'd ever want to know about Michael Saul Dell the founder of Dell Technologies.
1: Hope you're paying attention because information just gathered from that uh, segment could land you free lunch. Stand by for the pop quiz on Tech Talk Radio. Heard on every Saturday at 9 a.m. on Federal News Network, 1500 a.m., 103.5 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM.
3: Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank
2: you. This is not simply a radio show. It's a classroom of the airways. And that means that we're going to test whether our audience has been listening to the show with a pop quiz. Yes. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll win two tickets to fine dining at one of our uh, dining rooms as soon as they open. Now, earlier in the show, I was talking about Michael Saldell, CEO and founder of Dell Technologies. What computer, what was his first computer? And this is the computer they took apart, put together, and that's how he got the inkling and the desire to to start his own computer company.
3: All right. Well, now it's that part of the show where I tell you that if you know the answer to today's question, pick up your phone and give us a call. If you do and you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of the crab and oyster pot at Playa Del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333 trying to get your GED in Canada, will call us on the Wild Guard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else, may call us on the International Line. It's right next to the Lysol wipes, 877 936 Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schurz.
1: So how are the crab and lobster pots down there, Doc?
2: Well, the crabs are not too strong. I mean, a few crabs are coming in. They haven't really come back yet. But the oysters oysters are doing really good. Good. Of course of course you just you just grow them. They 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 can't go anywhere. <laughs> but the crabs are beginning to come back, mm-hmm. but uh not not so many so far. Well, I want to just wish 40th happy birthday to Pac-Man. It's really really a a, a mo- momentous time now. Mm-hmm. The classic and popular Pac-Man video game came out in Japan on May 21st, 1980, that's 40 years ago, plus two days, by October, it was released to the United States. I didn't realize it was actually a Japanese game, Jim. Pac-Man doesn't sound Japanese name. Well, but did
1: you ever play Pac-Man?
2: I played Pac-Man, yeah.
1: I don't know. It, it, it's, yeah. I guess you're right. Okay. Moving along. I'll, I yeah. will not disagree with you on that.
2: So the Pac-Man is a little pie-shaped character with a mouse, a little yellow pie-shaped yeah. character with a mouse. And it travels around a maze eating dots. Mm-hmm. And it tries to avoid four ghosts that are trying to hunt him down. So if a, if a ghost runs into the Pac-Man, he's, he's, he's gone. And so you, you've got to avoid the ghosts and you try to eat as many dots as you can before a ghost gets you. Now, to this day, Pac-Man remains one of the most popular video games in history. Its innovative design has been the focus of many and numerous books. Now, the game was actually created by Namco in Japan, and it was released in the U.S. by Midway. By 1981, there were approximately 250 million games of Pac-Man being played in the U.S. each week on 100,000 pac-man machines Mm. that were video arcades i mean this this was a day before people had their own computer you know so they had to deploy these pac-man machines and and i and there were a hundred thousand pac-man machines i I never played pac-man on one of the machines i always played a pac-man on you know on an application on my pc Mm -hmm. but uh in 1981 they had the pac-man machines out since then pac-man has been released on nearly every video game platform on May 21st of 2010, Google Doodle Google Doodle, <laughs> even, even featured a playable version to mark the 30th anniversary of Pac-Man's release. Now, according to the Japanese game designer Toru Iwatani, Pac-Man was conceived as an antidote to the overwhelming number of games with violent themes, such as asteroids, space invaders, tail gunner and Galaxion; These are all things, zero are all shoot em up things, and he didn't like that, so he created this game as something that would be much more benevolent. So there you go. Happy birthday to Pac-Man.
1: All right, we got somebody who'd like to play the game. Okay. Let us go to line one. This is Lewis calling us from Rockville. Good morning, Lewis. How are you, sir? Good morning. How are you guys? Good, and happy belated birthday to you, Lewis. Yeah. Thank you very so, right, let- much.
2: Right. Earlier in the show we talked about Michael Dell, CEO of Dell Technologies. What was his first computer, the one that he took apart and put back together?
1: Apple II, and he bought that Radio Shack. There you go. Excellent. Correct. Hang on, we're going to send you back to Andrew. Have a good Memorial Day weekend. Thanks for checking in. Let's check in there. It is Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk on Federal News Network, part of the, uh, or Federal News Radio, I should say. We're on 1500 AM, uh, 103.5 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. You can uh, also learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. We'll be back with more of the program in just a minute.
0: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Shirts of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. Oh, you hear that music,
1: Jim? I see what you were trying to do. Is that how you wound up in airplane mode? It was you're doing this?
2: Yeah, I'm playing Pac-Man. You are? <laughs> Recognize that music. I,
1: I do. Uh, this was a significant part of my teenage years.
2: Yeah. Pac-Man in the bunker.
1: Can you make it go away? Good, thank you.
2: Yeah, there we go. You it's was it gone now. Is it time for
1: observations in the bunker?
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. See, I, I sit down here, think, you know, try to concentrate in this in this bunker environment. And things get a little tense, and I play a little bat Pac-Man because it's the I'm celebrating the 40th anniversary of Pac-Man, of course. <laughs> and so. People, as they're sitting here in the bunker, they're trying to evaluate what what are their career options and Mm -hmm. what could they do. And uh, and especially a lot of the kids coming right out of uh, college, uh, you know, they're in this dilemma. They, They try to get a job, but they say, well, you can't get a job without experience. And then. They feel you can't get experience without a job. So it's like the chicken and egg. What comes first, the experience or the job? And so let me give you the answer. Here's the drum roll. Wow,
1: you're just you got you've got all the sound effects. I got down everything there. down there. What do you need the, me for?
2: The the drum roll is unpaid project-based experience. You just start doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And um and you just pick something you're interested in and just start working on it. I mean, like uh I remember a long time ago I wanted to learn databases, so I just wrote the first student information system at Stratford. I just started learning databases. That's how I learned it. And that's the best way to do it. And, uh, and so you, you just start working on projects and you, but you find something that you're, that you're interested in because people learn by doing. And, uh, And then what you uh, and then what you can do these days, you can uh, you you can even uh, with with certain job sites you you can get paid for stuff that you're working on. Now, I picked a couple of projects that I'm working on just to give you an example. Okay. Um, you know, we've got culinary arts, but I've always been interested in herbs. You know, you've got, you know, basil and, um, you know, oregano and you specified what kind of herbs. rosemary and these sorts of things. And I've always taken these things out of a bottle. I've never actually had my own herb garden. So now down here in the bunker, I've set up an entire herb garden. And, and now I'm uh, learning to recognize what these taste like as fresh herbs that are in the ground. And it's nothing, tastes no. nothing like what's in those bottles, I can like tell you.
1: when you take it out of a, 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 a bottle of dried spices is, is what you mean, right? Yeah,
2: it, yeah. it, it, it tastes it's totally it's, different. So one of my projects, I decided if I'm going to be in the bunker, I'm going to learn how to cook with fresh herbs and spices. That's that was that that was one of my goals to do. So I so I'm this I'm working on that project. So anybody that is interested in culinary arts, they, you can easily do that because you can you can go down to the store and you can buy a little a little pot with the or with an herb in it for like 215 you just plant them and you can have a whole herb garden quite easily. Now the second thing I'm doing I I'm really interested in machine learning. So I'm uh, I'm uh, learning Python's cuz Python is used as a, it's it's an easy easy language but but a lot of the programs in machine learning are written in Python. And so I'm learning uh, learning Python and I'm you know working on machine learning. This is something that I'm just really interested in. And of course if you're doing programming I mean the dirty little secret of programming is that most of it's cut and paste. Mm-hmm. you know you find right. it you find a program that that does something similar, you copy it, paste it in, make a few tweaks to it to make it do what you want. And so uh, there's a lot of cutting and pasting and programming, and so you, you have to learn how to how to search for open source code. You don't want to steal code, but you but, no. but there's a lot of open source code out there that's available. but so the key is you just start working on stuff now. The good news is you, you might be able to get paid for this. Remember I talked about these, uh, these, uh, websites where you could get gigs where you can, you know, you, you can bid on a job to do something. And I, I gave about six of them a few weeks ago. Well, let me talk there. People did a survey on two of them. Fiverr is one of them. F I V R R mm-hmm. and Upwork is another one. These are the two big ones. And they said, okay, what kind of jobs can you get out? Can you, can you get online? So, as more and more businesses are going online, they're looking to hire people who know a little bit about building an online presence. So, for and there are a lot of things that you could do. Like for instance, um, uh, you could you could write online articles, and typically you'll get for an online article between one hundred and thirty-five and nine hundred ninety-five dollars uh, for an online article. Uh, you could you could actually um, uh, you could actually optimize existing content. On a website, using search engine optimization, you could learn how to do that, and you could bid on that job, and you could bid anywhere from $135 to $995. And so what you do is you bid on something that's easy enough for you to do and just bid a low price, and then you'll do it, and you'll start building up, building up experiences. Now, if you want to build a website, like I, when I originally wanted to learn PHP, I built the first website, database-driven website that Stratford had all written with PHP, and a lot of the code in that PHP website, actually, I just cut and pasted from, you know, open source uh, open source documents that were out there. Now, you can build a website with WordPress, relatively easy to do it, and you can bid, and the, the bids on Fiverr are going between $395 and $4,000 for building a website. So you just bid low and build the, build the website. If you want to do video editing, you can get from a, a $100 to, thir- to uh, $3,200 to edit, Social media videos and event footage, and you know it's relatively relatively easy to do that. Some people want to have social media management of their brand, including strategizing, writing creative posts for the platform on Twitter and YouTube. You can earn twenty-five dollars an hour for that, on average, on Upwork. Now, there's a lot of stuff in app development, product product testing, like on mobile app development. That's one of the highest-paid hustles on Fiverr. You can get a project any from anywhere between $3,000 to $300 uh, creating an application, but that requires that you know something about programming and coding. You could work on graphic design or UI, user interface, and uh, typically you can, you can you know work on uh, optimizing an app in that sense, and you can earn anywhere from $185 to $6,300 on, on app projects on either Fiverr Fiver or, or uptick quality assurance testing. You guys that have, that, have, that do know how to write code, you can earn about $36 an hour in doing QE tasting, testing on, um, on software. Now, there's also something really interesting. You can teach whatever you're good at. Fiverr has a new service category, which caters to people stuck at home during the pandemic, and they want to offer classes like in crafting and cooking and music or language. People charge anywhere from $5 to $100 a class, depending on how involved their lesson is. For example, a home chef might sell recipes or remote cooking tutorials starting at $5 or as high as $100. Personal trainers offer virtual training sessions from $15 to $75. So the point is, you can actually get experience without a job, and you can do something pretty useful even if if you're not being paid for it. You don't have to be paid, but you can be paid with these... uh, with these um, with these sites where you can get a get a gig, so that's kind of what I'm thinking about, uh, because everybody wants to know where they're going to go with their career, and, the, and there's a, it's a time for introspection. So there you go, observations from the bunker.
1: Very good. We'll just keep the show here for the rest of the okay.
2: Uh... Well, Jim, as I was saying earlier, the Mac has finally arrived. Malware infects one in ten Mac Mac users, according to the security firm Kapersky... Macs have been a frequent target of what's called the Slayer Trojan, Slayer Trojan. Now, the company reports that it's been active since at least 2018, but in 2019, it became the most common threat to the Mac operating system. Around 10% of all Macs were attacked by it, and, and by itself, Slayer represents 30% of all 30% of all Trojans in Mac operating in the Mac operating system. The Shlayer Trojan is a delivery mechanism for a variety of malware payloads. It gets into a Mac and then fetches other malicious code. Now, the first, the, what they do, they'll, the first, here's what the sequence of events is. The first is that you click on a site, which initia- you click on some site that, that has been infected with malware, and that initiates the download of the Shlayer Trojan to the user's Mac. Thousands of, insi- of websites include this download, typically because the sites partner with cyber criminals. So, you know, some of the unsavory sites that frequently people visit mm-hmm. might be affected not with Not
1: personally, those. no.
2: Not personally, no, not at all. Now, typically, the user link takes you to an advertising page which will try to persuade them to download software a common method is to display a fake message about Adobe Flash being out of date and then the download that flash button actually downloads the Trojan or it might say your computer has been infected click on this link to clean your computer and actually you're downloading malware now once downloaded the user is prompted to install the application When it's been installed, the Shlayer Trojan itself downloads adware and other malicious apps. One type of malware that the Shlayer Trojan installs is is a Safari extension. And the Mac Mac does ask if you're sure you want to use it. And if you say, okay, I want to use it, Shlayer then begins overlaying the message with a fake dialogue box that says the installation is complete. So you you don't even see that, that request. Once installed, the Mac user is bombarded with ads. Any browser can also be affected by targeting ads. So congratulations to the Macintosh computer. You have finally achieved parity with Windows in this critical malware department. Now let's talk about this uh, SMR drive. It's called shingled magnetic recording. This I just I just discovered that actually. Okay. I, I didn't actually realize about it. Now Toshiba, and this one I discovered it. Toshiba finally fessed up, and they published a full list of all the consumer hard drives in their lineup that use SMR, shingled magnetic recording. Now shingled magnetic recording is a magnetic storage, uh, magnetic magnetic storage technique that allows you to increase the storage density and overall per-drive storage capacity. So if you use the SMR technology, you can take an existing drive and make it look like it has more capacity, and you can sell it for more. Now, conventional hard drives record data by writing non-overlapping magnetic tracks parallel to each other. The shingled recording writes so that the tracks overlap, and so when you write one track, you're overlapping on the previous track that you wrote. And so the tracks are shingled because they're overlapping, like shingles on the roof are overlapping. Now, the overlapping architecture uh, allows for higher density because the track density is higher. However, it complicates the writing process since writing one track also overwrites the adjacent track. And if the adjacent track contains valid data, they must be rewritten as well. Hence, you're doing a lot more rewriting to maintain the uh, the shingled data structure. And what happens is the drives are slower. And this is particularly bad for gamers or high-intensity usage like video editing. Now... And they wouldn't tell you that these that these that they that the drives are using SMR. But finally, Toshiba came clean, they gave a list of SMR drives. Uh, Western Digital also published a full list of their SMR drives. Now Seagate has been shamed into releasing a list of their hard drives. So uh, so when you're buying a hard drive, but particularly when you want to have a high-performance drive, make certain to go to the vendor and look up SMR and make certain that the drive you're buying is not using SMR technology because it's much much slower. Now let's talk about um, the new CISA security uh, alerts which is affecting millions of users. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure in- Infrastructure Security Agency CISA warned that the rapid deployment of Office 365 has f- has actually forced businesses to change their collaboration methods. And when they change their collaboration methods, they always weren't as secure as they should have been. Now, Microsoft has warned enterprise customers that a really high percentage of accounts are being compromised. Microsoft says that if you have an organization of 100,000 users, 50 of them are going to be compromised this month. 50 users a month in in an organization with 100,000, with 10,000 users. This means that there would be more than 1 million compromised accounts per month. Now, CISA said the hastily deployment has led to oversight in security configuration, which undermines a sound Office 365 security strategy. They highly recommend multi-factor authentication. So when you log on, it sends a text message to a cell phone or to another email account with a code and you have to enter that code to get into the account. So someone, even if they have your password, they have to have access to the device that's receiving the second authentication factor. And it turns out that if organizations would use MFA, they could eliminate the bulk of their problems. And so CISA is highly recommending that organizations do that immediately. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalkatstratford.edu We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And we want you to go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out our programs there. And when you make an inquiry, tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio.
0: Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.